This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. Every day we hear Christian catchphrases, a kind of Christianese, if you will, made up of slogans, compressed ideas about God or faith, that we drop into everyday conversations about life. Catchphrases like, the devil made me do it, or Jesus, take the wheel. And after all, what would Jesus do? What do we really mean when we say that? Well, let's take a look at some common Christian catchphrases and what the Bible has to say. You know, one time or another, we've all likely come across the idea uh, that researchers, pollsters, and others commonly refer to as a practicing Christian or a non-practicing Christian or a self-identifying Christian or a nominal Christian or something along those lines. Uh, These are terms that we frequently hear uh, from people outside of our faith, people in the culture at large, talking about different types of Christians, different types of Christians. And the fundamental idea here is that you can separate being a, a Christian from practicing Christianity. And you hear something very similar in reference to uh, Muslims and Jews and Catholics and so forth. And although these phrases are common enough that they aren't usually how uh, you and I would, would talk about this, right? We have our own set of catchphrases for this idea. Uh, having personally lived all over the United States, I've noticed that different regions talk about this slightly differently, in fact. Uh, when I uh, was living in Washington State, I'd hear people talk about how, well, I'm a Christian, but I'm not a Bible beater. I'm a Christian, but I'm not a Bible beater. Or when I moved to Pennsylvania, I would hear people say, well, I'm a believer, but I'm not a holy roller. I'm still not entirely sure what a holy roller is exactly. Maybe somebody can explain that to me later. But, but I'm a believer. I'm not a holy roller. Right? When, I, when I grew up in Kansas, people would say, well, I'm a Christian, but I don't go to church all the time. You know, I'm not like super serious about it or something like that. Um, but what about Wisconsin? What do we say here? Maybe something along the lines of, well, I was baptized as a baby, but I haven't been to the church in forever, right? Or perhaps, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a Christian, but I'm not real religious. I believe in God and that sort of thing. Or why well, other times here, I, I believe in God and my wife goes to church. Um, <laughs> now, again, this might not be how you would say it, but it all gets at this same idea that there is a practicing Christian and a non-practicing Christian. I want to ask the question, with these types of Christians, what are we to make of this idea? What are we to make of the terms that people are using to describe the state of faith separate from the practice of it in light of how the scriptures would address this idea? What are we to make of this? And we shouldn't gloss over this. After all, you know, some of us are using this kind of language to excuse our behavior in some ways of what maybe we should be doing or what we're not doing or so on and so forth. Other times, others of us have a friend or a loved one that 
talks about their faith this way, right? Well, they'll divide their status as a Christian from the necessity to live out the teachings of Jesus. And we're very hesitant then to step into these kinds of waters for a variety of reasons, many of them very personal. But what are we to make of this? We don't want to simply consider the abstract idea of a practicing Christian but the real-life situations that they represent. Well, our question then is, what do the Scriptures have to say about it? And to answer that question, I want you to turn with me to James chapter 2. James chapter 2, beginning in verse 14. And church, it's very important you have your Bibles open, looking at this passage with me, looking at the words, paying close attention. As we do... We're going to see a core truth that James is expounding on, and then we're going to take that, we're going to use it to answer two very practical questions that just naturally follow with some ways to then also put this into practice. Now, James is a fascinating letter, uh, all about the demands of the gospel, this new way of living outlined by the law of liberty, as James is going to refer to it about how Christians are to follow Christ while enduring trials, progressing in their faith in the face of worldly temptations like wealth, worldly temptations like power and significance. And in this portion with chapter 2 right here, uh, which over the years a lot of ink has been spilt over, uh, we have a truth that is particularly helpful in evaluating our question of trying to understand a faith separate from its practice. So let's take a look. James chapter 2, James opens up in verse 14 with a rhetorical question. He says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Again, pay attention to the words here. Can that or the or such faith save him? Then he gives an example. Um, If a brother or sister, referring to a fellow Christian here, is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, so being utterly destitute, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Pause there. James is using a literary device here to set up a hypothetical situation where someone claims to have faith, but not works. They say they're a Christian, but they don't practice what Christ taught. And he asks if that kind of faith, if that version of faith can save him. Save him from what? Well, from God's judgment. And he illustrates this question with an example of a Christian who's utterly destitute. They they barely have the shirt on their back. They're they're uncertain where their next meal is coming from. Uh, A sister in Christ experiencing serious poverty. And they ask uh, someone who can help them, who, who legitimately can help them, and is claiming to have faith in Christ for help. And the response that they get is the equivalent of, um, well, I hope things work out for you. Good luck with that. All right, I hope things work out for you. And James repeats his question. He says, what good is that? What good is that? What benefit is that? Which the natural answer is none. It's not. And this example serves to answer his question, if that kind of faith can save someone with his point in verse 17, where he says, so also faith 
by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. It's no good. What's James saying? He's saying that, uh, that kind of faith that has no works is dead faith. This lack of works, don't miss this, this lack of works doesn't ruin faith. It reveals the kind of faith it is. James is exposing false faith. To lean on probably the most classic way of explaining this passage, uh, imagine an apple tree. An apple tree by nature works to produce what? Apples. Just my helpful hint here. I wasn't sure if you were going to get that one, so just kidding. Works to produce apples, right? Uh, You might not get apples every season, uh, and one tree might produce lots of apples, and another tree might produce very few. But a tree that produces only pine cones and not apples isn't an apple tree. It's a pine tree, right? It's not an apple tree. And a kind of faith that is by itself, that doesn't have works, is dead. It's so deficient, it's not even real. It's false faith. It's not saving faith. So church, don't miss this key truth, that our good works are the natural result of our saving faith. Our good works are the natural result of our saving faith. Gang, a Christian that has no fruit, no results, no obedience to what Christ has commanded has false faith because our good works are the natural result of saving faith. If Christ has brought you from death to life, uh, then there will be some, even some small kind of evidence of living faith. There'll be some life signs. And when we think about our terms of a practicing Christian then or a non-practicing Christian, we should recognize that to say the one is to be redundant and to say the other is an oxymoron. To say the one is to be redundant and to say the other, other is to put forward an oxymoron. As one author wrote, imagine applying this criteria to other groups, non-practicing athletes who profess to be athletes but don't actually play any sport. Or a non-practicing mechanic who doesn't actually repair vehicles. Christianity is not a series of beliefs one agrees or disagrees with. It's a vocation. The gospel of Christ is a free gift, but one that demands action in response. Saving faith has a natural connection to producing good works. And so church, let's be clear. Some kind of liberal Christianity that says, I can have Jesus, but his commands, I don't have to be worried about, is a dead faith. It's an oxymoron faith. Some kind of conservative Christian who says they believe all the right things, has the means but won't lift a finger for a destitute brother or sister in Christ reveals their true belief too. Their faith, to borrow another catchphrase, is deader than a doornail. It's false faith. And for us, we need to recognize that genuine faith, saving faith, naturally produces good works in the same way that an apple tree naturally produces apples. So to be clear, abundantly clear, for those of us maybe who have been unnerved or perhaps confused about this passage in the past, this understanding of faith and works, it's not at all out of sync with how the Apostle Paul understood saving faith. Listen to how he describes it in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through what? Faith. And this is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. 
For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared when? Beforehand that we should walk in them. Friends, our good works are the natural result of our saving faith. Now let's utilize this truth and let's answer two very practical questions with it. And the first one is, what are we to make then of a non-practicing Christian? What are we to make of a non-practicing Christian? Well, to answer that, we have to look back at the text. James picks back up his case here, and he offers another hypothetical situation where someone proposes an objection that sees faith and works as separate but equal ways of genuinely following Christ. It says this, verse 18, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. James checks this mindset saying, show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. All right, now, remember the apple tree here. James pictures someone trying to draw a false dichotomy, uh, and they're questioning here James's idea, uh, saving faith as if you can have apples apart from an apple tree. You can have apples apart from a tree. That you can have faith apart from works. And his response is, go ahead and try it. Meanwhile, I'll show you my apple tree by my apples. <laughs> I'll show you my, my evidence of a saving faith in Christ by my good works of obeying Christ. Now, what follows here is an example after example of saving faith that James is putting forward with his commentary on him. He says here in the first one, verse 19, you believe that God is one. Even the demons believe. And shudder, right? You believe God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown to be a foolish person that faith apart from works is useless? Now, church, on one hand, I I want to be thoughtful with how I say this because I realize that in preaching on this, some of you are probably thinking about various loved ones that fit the bill with this description. And I I don't want to inflict upon you any undue pain. However, the way that this passage answers our question of what are we to make of a non-practicing Christian is blunt and it's sarcastic. Look at the way he postulates this idea. He says, you believe in the sense of of an intellectual agreement with the basic creed of Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And he says, good job. Even the demons believe that. You now have the faith equivalent to demons. And they shudder at the idea. So in other words, they mentally agree, and they emotionally respond to it. But listen. Intellectual agreement, the amounts to a head nod and some goosebumps, is not saving faith. It's not saving faith at all. James scorns the idea of even such a thing as a non-practicing Christian or a Christian without faith that results in good works. And so we should too. A non-practicing Christian doesn't make sense. So faith that stops short of attempted obedience isn't faith that saves. Now, that doesn't mean that a Christian never sins or isn't ever stuck in sin or ever wrestling or tempted or confused. Absolutely, that happens. But that's not what's in focus here. 
Other passages of Scripture help us to understand those situations. And obviously, also, external acts of mercy with the poor, like James's example here, they aren't the only uh, good work that define a Christian. There's others, too. But if our good works are the natural result of our saving faith in Christ, then a Christian without any good works, none whatsoever, doesn't make sense. As another author wrote, once we're saved by faith, or I'm sorry, we're saved by faith alone. But once we're saved, that faith doesn't remain alone. And this should help us to have a clearer understanding of this idea. It should help us then to cultivate the right response. Folks, I've said it before, but bears repeating that it does no one any good pretending that someone is saved when they're not. When we do, when we pretend that a non-practicing Christian is saved, what it does is it blurs the lines of authentic Christianity. They may be a spouse, it may be a child, a best friend, a coworker, but don't foster the idea that there's such a thing as a non-practicing Christian, of a Christian that doesn't follow Christ, of faith without works, of being some sort of then saving faith. Instead, like James Aim to be an authentic model of faith that produces good works. Aim to be an authentic model of faith that produces good works. In fact, be very cautious with this about being the fruit inspector of someone else's apple tree, if you will. Instead, be far more concerned with pointing people to Christ, the gospel message, and all the while aiming to be an authentic model of faith that produces good works. Look for opportunities to explain and to show the link between saving faith that naturally leads to good works. Now, that logically leads us to our second question of what would that look like in life? What do good works resulting from faith in life look like? Or to stick with our terms for today, what does a Christian look like in practice? What does a Christian look like in practice? When you and I think of someone who's putting their faith into practice, I don't know who comes to your mind but I think it's utterly fascinating who comes to James's mind. Because James shares here two historical and yet polar opposite examples of faith leading to good works. Saying this, verse 21, Was not Abraham, our father, justified by works? We'll come back to that. When he offered up his son Isaac on the altar. We see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed or matured by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now, don't be confused. A saving faith naturally leads to good works. So if faith that is completed or matured uh, has produced good works then. And the context, justified, means vindicated or validated. In other words, one's claim to faith or to believe was vindicated or validated by their actions, not that they earned salvation. It doesn't work that way, and that's not his point. James is saying that Abraham's actions validated, justified his claims to faith. In practice, Abraham shows us what true faith looks like. That it withholds nothing from God's commands. It's all on the table with God, which means that his status was as a friend of God, not as a stranger 
And then James moving to almost an exact polar opposite person shows us the same point in verse 25 when he says, and in the same way was not Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. In the book of Joshua chapter 2, we find the story of Rahab. Uh, Rahab uh, was someone who was surrounded by people that had faith equivalent to that of demons. People who knew that the Lord was God, who were utterly and emotionally afraid of him. But she was the only one who put her trust in him. She was the only one who showed allegiance and true faith that was genuine in her actions. Now see, typically... When we think about this concept, well, we typically think about things in a very linear fashion, uh, that we would start with one and we would count to ten. We would start with uh, go and work to the finish line, right? Um, and so forth. But in these examples, James here, James is starting at ten and he's counting down to one. He's starting at the finish line of faith and working backwards to show how it was genuine. And when we think about the apple tree analogy with our faith, how do you know it was an apple tree? Usually we answer and like to answer that question the way that the Apostle Paul did, by starting at the beginning and saying that the seed of the gospel is a seed that's effective. If God opens up the soil of your heart to receive it, then something's going to happen. And the first thing that is going to happen is repentance. It goes from there. James is going to look at the very same question and say, well, how do you know that it's an apple tree? You got apples from it. <laughs> you know it's a genuine gospel seed because it, as it matures, you see the effects, the good works. Both are accurate because a saving faith naturally leads to good works, and you can't pry it apart. Whether you're looking at it from the beginning point or the matured ending point, only a dead, non-saving faith produces absolutely nothing, as James points out. And so Rahab, as unexpected of an example in religious circles as there ever was, is held up as a shining example of genuine faith, justified faith, because she obeyed. She risked everything out of a trust that the God of Israel was real and that he would deliver her. And that's what a Christian in practice looks like. It looks like someone seeking to obey Christ out of an, infection, an affection for him based on a basic knowledge of him. Classically, this has been described as the doctrine of saving faith, as a right understanding of Christ, what he did on our behalf, embracing what he did for us personally, and then genuinely trusting in that work in the sense of putting it into practice, not just in what we say we believe, but in how we think, how we talk, how we live. It shows true faith. And every last one of us, we know that what James is saying about faith here, about genuine faith, is right on. If you're a parent, and you've got some maybe 16-year-old boy in the house, you've experienced this firsthand, and I'm not looking forward to it, right? Where you look at that young man, and he's got his driver's permit, and you can look at him and say, well, you have your driver's permit, but that's not enough. It's not enough to also look at him and say, man, he has his driver's permit, and I love him, and I believe he's a great driver. It's not enough. 
It's not enough until you take your blood pressure medication and you jump in the car and you let him drive. That's how you know you have genuine faith. We've all experienced it. We've all been there. That's when faith is completed and shown to be genuine. And that's the same idea with our faith here. As Courtney Doctor explains it, when Jesus saves us, he intends to transform us. Our transformation is to be holistic, affecting not only our head, what we think, but our hearts, what we love, and our hands, what we do. If we're understanding this truth, that our good works are the natural result of our saving faith that holds some very practical implications for our lives then. First of all, for those who have set up the false dichotomy that you can believe but not obey Christ, a non-practicing, self-identifying Christian, this passage stands as a warning. Rest assured, church, Christ knows exactly who belongs to him. And if your faith is nothing more than a church mask where you come when it's convenient and you keep a Bible in the car to make it look good or you come to church just for the emotional experience that it is, but that's all the deeper that your faith is, watch out. Watch out. Don't keep living like an oxymoron. Be warned with James's question, what good is that? If that's you and God is prodding your heart, don't wait. Confess your sin to God. Seek his forgiveness. Be baptized and disciple. Let another Christian into your life to show you how the scriptures would have you turn and to live a new way. Second, when researchers talk about what a practicing Christian does, do you know what they're referring to? Basically, attending church. Basically, that's it. Attending church somewhat regularly. That's it. But listen, friend. Don't settle for only a little bit of fruit in your spiritual life. Don't settle for only a little bit of fruit in your faith. If, if you're a genuine Christian looking at this passage, then recognize a call to not hold back in loving God. When Abraham was willing to offer up Isaac on the altar, only God saw it. Only God saw it. And when it comes to the qualities of a Christian, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, the vast majority of that character is only visible to God. Your heart is truly known by God. And don't hold back then from loving him with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength. Have a big vision for loving God with a desire for lots of fruit in your walk with him. Have a desire to, to set yourself and your spouse and your family free with permission to start angling for going farther and deeper and higher in your faith. Maybe do that just by starting to consider the question around the table. What would not holding back and loving God look like for us? What would that look like? Third and finally, embrace the call to not hold back and loving others. The most basic thing that you can do from looking at this passage and interacting with it today is to have a care for other Christians that moves to action who are struggling with basic necessities like food and clothing and shelter and heat in cold places like Wisconsin and spiritual shepherding and medical care. These kinds of basic necessities, care about them, invest in them, 
And to be clear in the context of what James is saying here, this fellow Christian who may be in need may be extremely different than you. They may look different than you. They may have a different background than you. They may have had a different upbringing than you. In fact, they may be as different as Abraham was from Rahab. But don't let that hold you back from loving others and caring for their genuine and their general well-being. Don't let that hold you back from a growing vision of putting your faith in the practice by loving other Christians. And from my vantage point, as a pastor, one of the ways that I've seen God sowing this truth throughout our churches and churches in general that I've been at in the past has just been with this little example that I've seen here and elsewhere over and over again where some Christian who has grasped the love and grace of God hears about a need. Somebody in the church is sick. Somebody in the church is hurting. Somebody in the church has a problem. Somebody in the church is experiencing some situation where they're undone or something's going unattended. Some problem has kept crept up. And just another one of the saints, just another one of the followers of Christ, steps up and answers the call. They, they help. They care for them, genuinely. They pray for them. And they take the opportunity and they carry it out with all diligence. As one of the shepherds around here, a lot of times I, I, I see that, and I try to make it a point to thank them and encourage them. And you know what happens? Almost to a T, they respond with something like, well, that's just what we do as Christians, isn't it? Well, pastor, that's, that's just what we do when we're in the body of Christ, don't we? Well, that's just part of the privilege of being saved. Well, I'm glad to do it. Or some other line. Because God has been at work sowing this truth throughout their heart that a Christian naturally works to produce good works, that saving faith has a natural outcome, completion, and maturity in good works. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you that we have the opportunity to celebrate to see your truth. I pray this morning for those of us in here, God, who, if we're being honest with ourselves, have nothing but a nominal, self-identifying, non-practicing Christian status attached to us. God, I pray for those of us in here who are feeling that conviction of your hand on our hearts, and I pray that we would be the first ones interested in taking this message to heart, that you would open up the soil of our heart, that the gospel seed would be planted, that it would be effective, and that we would see much fruit. I pray that we would take the steps that we've been invited to take, that we leave nothing undone, and that you would sovereignly oversee the process of our hearts, of the maturing process that we would get to see much fruit throughout our church, that believers in Christ would take a genuine care for others, and that we would be able to celebrate it all to you, that the saving faith that we've received, that the good works that you planned beforehand have all come to pass, and we would worship you in response to it. 
We pray this in your blessed and holy and majestic name, God. Thank you for being our God. Amen.